Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, a message from our sponsors. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Now, 
let me return you to the investigation of Agent Caulfield as the search for the truth of these missing persons turns sour. Agent Parsons has informed me that you do not require interrogation regarding the disappearance of Agent Gray. I believe otherwise. So, where would you like to begin, Agent Caulfield? Sir, this is a mistake. It has been five days. We need to start looking elsewhere. I've told Parsons and Freeman everything. Well, now you can tell me. Sir, Agent Gray and I went out to have drinks with Agent Parsons and Agent Freeman a little less than a month ago. We ended up discussing old cases, and I remembered the first missing persons case I ever worked as an apprentice agent under Senior Agent Moritz during my first week in the department. I did not remember much, but I checked up on the case the next day when I got into the department. The video files were missing, all of them, just like this interview will probably go missing. Are you saying you are going to make this interview disappear, Agent Caulfield? No, sir. But any and all videos related to the cases Gray and I have been investigating have disappeared. Gray, I... To what extent does your relationship expand beyond the professional realm, Agent Caulfield? It does not, sir. Not yet. Continue your recount, Agent. Yes, sir. I found the case, missing persons, missing video files, but with some old data papers and audio recordings. I did not think much of it. But Agent Gray looked into it more over the next few days. She found over 20 cases that fit a similar description. The cases we brought to you. The data we left with you, sir. Yes, I know, Agent Caulfield. I looked over it. While it was not grounds enough to involve the CDF, I sent out an information request to agents, fellow enforcers, and several other departments. I received no replies. Continue. Well... When we brought that information to you, Agent Gray and I had concluded that if another missing person was going to go missing, it was going to be in approximately two weeks. The date of that disappearance was five days ago. Sir, I believe Agent Gray... I believe Agent Gray has been abducted. So, you and Agent Gray believe that the citizens in these reports went missing on a schedule of approximately one abduction every six months. Is that correct? Yes, sir. You believe that they were abducted, not that these unrelated individuals with vastly different backgrounds, appearances, occupations, and social circles chose to disappear or went missing under unrelated circumstances? Yes, sir. Several of the cases have recorded witness statements, written or audio, with details recording a person approaching the now-missing citizens. Those who disappear walk off with this unknown person and never return. I think this is the abductor. So you are saying that the supposed victims just walked away with this alleged abductor? Yes, sir. Continue your account, Agent Caulfield. Agent Gray told me that she planned to go out the night of the abduction, or the night we thought the next abduction might be. If you believe this to be true, Agent Caulfield, why did you not go with her? Because... Because we did not know where or when. Everything had been so random. She believed in the connections more than me. She saw them, but I believe now. I was exhausted. So many excuses. Did you speak with Agent Gray after your discussion about her going out the night of the expected disappearance? Yes, sir. 
Where did she plan on going? We spoke while she was out on her unofficial patrol. She was in District 7. What did you discuss, Agent Caulfield? She, um... She stopped some kids from vandalizing, intervened in a domestic dispute issue, saw some drunks. There was a music show that let out and crowds were around her for most of our conversation. She spoke about my cousin. We set a time to go out for drinks. This is the last you heard from Agent Gray? Yes, sir. When you came to me the day following her disappearance, you tried to show me something on your computer. Video, sir. But just like all the other videos related to these cases, sir, it disappeared. Did you delete the video, Agent Caulfield? No, sir! Tomorrow, Agent Caulfield, you will report for your normal shift and reassume your workload and regular assignments. Yes, sir, but, sir, is there going to be an official investigation? There already is. Agent Gray was an exemplary agent. Until she was missing for 32 hours, I was not able to file an active missing persons case or open an official investigation, though several agents started regardless. She was leading all other agents for advancement to senior agent, you included, Agent Caulfield. She deserves it, sir. Dismissed. That interview took place months ago now. The investigation into the disappearance of Agent Gray has gained no further evidence. Like so many other cases, the task of finding a friend and colleague was drowning under piling tasks. Eventually, the senior agent assigned to the case was given other reports, issues, and cases, and bit by bit, the tasks pushed Gray from his mind. My fellow agents avoided the topic like some hard stain, a failure too clean to exist. Nothing could be found. The videos were gone. Every second of security camera and CCTV recordings from the area where she was last seen was scoured. Yet, nothing. No trace evidence was found. Witnesses from the area had nothing of use. The location services on a hood existed up to a point, then simply did not exist at all. They even conducted an internal investigation into her personal life, examining her home computer, contacts, recreational locations. Me. They were searching for the possibility that Grey having betrayed Atreus, having stolen the tapes and then fled out into the fringe. They found no evidence. I knew they never would. I walked a box into storage, that compassionate hall where dying things go to be laid to rest, where the shame of the department grows deeper and darker. Enforcer Shinko officially kept the case open, but spending time on a lost cause gets an agent's numbers down, so no one would choose to work it. I spent lunches at my desk, keeping hope alive with every desperate call to find a witness from that night. Enforcer Shinko didn't see the connection as strongly as I did, and he denied permission for me to call in past witnesses from past cases. Do not open old wounds, he said. It took some time, but I came to a conclusion I could not believe we had not made before. Everything that went missing, every video from the streets or the department, it was all attached to an intranet system meant to make our lives easier, more connected. If I recorded an interrogation or witness interview in one department, it became available to agents across departments. Easy coordination and cross-departmental communication. Advancement for us all. I decided. I don't really enjoy my job. Hello. I'm contacting you in hopes of reaching Julia Farrow. Is she available? This is Julia. This is Agent Caulfield with the Department of Community Order. I was hoping I could get you to come in for... for a repeat of your previous witness testimony and the disappearance of Euclid Sutton. That was four years ago. I do not remember as much now as I did the last time I gave my statement. I understand that, ma'am, but due to a technical error with the transference of video files during a system upgrade, we've lost your previous witness statements. Lost? 
I guess this means you are still looking for him? We would like to ensure that we have all information prevalent to the case available to us. Can you come in to give a statement? Today? If possible. Same department as last time? Yes, ma'am. It is Miss, and I will be there in 20 minutes. Thank you, Miss. Based on the few written notes available at the cases that Gray collected, Julia Farrow had lost her fiancé, Euclid Sutton, four years ago, in a disappearance case that matched our timeline. The agent assigned to the case had been fired two years ago, though I don't know why, and the written notes on the case were lacking and scarce. He had several video files attached to the case file, all of which were missing. Citizen Farrow showed up slightly earlier than expected, and while her clothes were well-pressed, and her hair perfectly aligned, her eyes were hollow and sunken. Had I not known better, I'd have thought she'd have worked here. Julia Farrow? Yes. You must be Agent Caulfield. Yes. Please follow me to the room where we'll be conducting the interview. May I get you anything? No, I am fine. Thank you. This will be recorded for only for audio, so don't mind the recorder. This is Agent Caulfield taking a statement from citizen Julia Farrow regarding the disappearance of Euclid Sutton for case number 52958. Please reference the file for dates and additional information. Now, Miss Farrow, can you tell me what you were doing the night citizen Sutton went missing? Euclid, that is, Sutton, and I were in District 5 out at the Hexbox Cafe with several of his friends and professional colleagues. He worked as a personal resources representative for several broadcasts. It is a nice job for nice people. And all of his co-workers were also his friends. It was a long night. I was so drained, but Euclid always had so much more energy than I did. I was practically falling asleep in my seat while the others laughed and laughed. Euclid had a great laugh. What was your relationship with Euclid, miss? We were engaged. Had been for about a month at that point. We had been together for about two years, and and while we were engaged, we hadn't set a date yet. We always thought we had time. It was dark when we left the cafe, and I was nearly asleep on my feet walking back to our apartment. We did not live far, and the temperature was so nice. A little colder and fresher than the air in the cafe. But as we walked, someone came up to us. Or, more specifically, to Euclid. This person was thin, very thin, and looked short, but also tall, maybe. I was so tired. They had a privacy hood and coat, whether appropriate. Can you think of anything else about this person? Maybe male. Maybe stood a bit crookedly. No, I am sorry. But they spoke to Euclid. They said, Excuse me, politely, very quietly, like a whisper. Then will you help me? What did the voice sound like? More male than female, I think. Slightly rough. It was so long ago, though. Do not worry. You're doing a great job. Please continue. That... That is everything. That was it. 
He said, I'll... I'll see you upstairs in a bit. Reeve, those are the last words I ever heard from him. <laughs> My discussion with Citizen Pharaoh ended there for the most part. She cried, and nothing else she said was intelligible enough to be included in the recording up to that point. Like the others in the files Greg collected, no trace of Euclid was ever found. I sent Julia home after letting her regain her composure in the interrogation room. As soon as she stepped into the elevator, I heard the words, My office now, Agent Caulfield. Enforcer Shinko, sir, I can explain. No, Agent Caulfield. Be quiet and listen. Your work is falling behind again. You have disobeyed a direct order, and you are becoming fixated on Agent Gray's case. I understand she was a great agent, but we have no new information and no new leads. Did you get anything prevalent from Citizen Pharaoh? No, sir. So, now a distressed citizen has to go back to her daily life with a new reminder of the loved one she lost and the lack of results we've produced in the last two years. Keep investigating if you truly feel like you have missed something. But keep up with your work, or even more cases will go unanswered. And stop vexing old witnesses, huh? Yes, sir. I understand, sir. You should know, though, sir, that another witness is already on their way in, sir. Last one, Agent Caulfield, or you will be suspended as quickly as I can blink. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Go. May I help you? I was told this was Agent Caulfield's desk. Are you Marius Mellon? Yes, we spoke earlier. Yes, thank you for coming in, Citizen Mellon. Please, follow me to a room where we can talk with the recorder. May I get you anything? I, I just had lunch. I'm fine. This will be recorded for audio, so don't mind the recorder. This is Agent Caulfield taking a statement from Citizen Marius Mallon. Dr. Marius Mallon, now. It's rather new. May not be in your file yet. Oh, my apologies. Congratulations. Thank you. <clears throat> this is Agent Caulfield taking a statement from Dr. Marius Mallon regarding the disappearance of his husband, August Mallon, for case number 39673. Please reference file for dates and additional information. Now, Dr. Mallon, can you tell me about the night that Citizen Mallon went missing? August and I had been out at a seminar. Were you still studying at the time of his disappearance? No, but August was interested in the newest advancements in geological mapping, since he was a structural engineer for the mines. And we decided to make a date out of it. We went out to eat beforehand, then to the seminar. I understand. Please continue. After the seminar and general discussion had concluded, we spoke with a few other people in attendance, and August approached Dr. Cross the speaker, regarding when he had believed these new advancements would be available and implemented in the mines. So it took us longer than we thought it would to leave. We walked from the seminar when we left, as our babysitter's apartment was relatively close. We went to Miss Delore's apartment and picked up Skella. She was just under a year old then. We picked up Skella. I had her strapped to me in the holder. We started walking home. You're very calm about this, Dr. Mallon. I should be. I recently became a doctor of psychological health and social work. I spend my days trying to help people through their difficult times. 
Please continue with your account, Dr. Mallon. After he had picked up Skilla, we walked to the sky rail. Everything was normal, and Skilla seemed to be sleeping so peacefully. On the sky rail, off the sky rail. We live in a nice part of District 6. It is a generally nice district, too. We know our neighbors, and the streets are clean. Skilla and I still live there today, though we have moved to a different building. I enjoy my patrols in District 6. The old woman who runs the accessory store in the northeast corner of Tower 3 always gives me an ice-cold water every time I walk by. Old Mrs. Kalani. Yes, that's her. Please continue. After we left the Skyrail station and were in the street, which was so close to our apartment, Scala started fussing and crying. I thought she was hungry at first, and in that moment hadn't thought that it might have had more to do with the disruption of her sleep schedule. She was so loud in the middle of the night, and it seems like every scream echoed off the buildings. While we stopped to calm Scylla, a man walked up to August. A man? Can you describe him? He was uneven, like when you crick your neck and you hold one shoulder higher than the other. Pole thin, and he had a long face, I, I think. He was wearing rather standard shaded privacy hood, but I could still see his jaw, like it hung slack. Thank you. Continue. The man came up to August, and I think I heard them say, excuse me, and ask for help. Skilla was so loud, though, and trying to feed her just centimeters from my face, it was a bit deafening. August leaned over to me and told me to take Skilla upstairs to the apartment, as it was far past her bedtime and she was obviously agitated with how late it was. So I did. I put the bottle away while I took Skilla into the building, up to our apartment. Changed her, put her in her night clothes, and set her to bed. August never came upstairs. I called his hood on the shortwave, but my calls never went through. August never came home. Is there anything else about the experience that stands out to you? Perhaps something about the man who came up to August? Before Skilla started crying, I heard some clicking noises and almost a low hum, maybe. We were still rather near the sky rail, so I just assumed it was some tools or the like. Anything else you would like to record about the incident, Dr. Mallet? Just that, I hope you find August. Skilla is growing up fast. She's seven now. She deserves better. Thank you, Dr. Mallet. I'll walk you out. Dr. Mallet and I moved through the department floor, and I could feel my fellow agent's eyes on me. I wasn't going to give up, but I could not become a burden to my department. My desk was meant for agents solving issues every day, hacking at the ever-growing pile of cases too trivial for the Civil Defense Force to bother with. I saw Dr. Mallon to the small waiting area next to the hall, and as we walked through a door, a small girl with dark, bouncy curls ran up and hugged his legs. We're leaving, Skilla. How was your wait? Not too long? Say hi to Agent Caulfield. She looked up at me, past her short, curly bangs with deep, brown eyes. But she didn't say a word. She's in a shy phase. Sorry. Let's get going, then. Still a lot to do today. Thank you, Agent Caulfield, for not giving up. Thank you for coming in, Dr. Mallon. I walked back through the rows of desks looking to face the stream of cases and reports awaiting me. Neither of my interviews with witnesses from previous cases had turned up any new evidence to aid in the investigation of those cases or of that of Gray. Most of those abductions had no witnesses at all, and those two witnesses were the only ones whose data was mostly missing after the discovery of the missing videos. It was a dead end. The same dead end Gray must have hit. This just under two weeks until the next possible disappearance. I came to a horrible conclusion. 
I was going out on patrol. I wasn't going out blind. It was some fluke of cosmic chance that whoever or whatever was taking people had found Grey out that night, that she'd been in the right place at the right time. Given my luck, I would never find what I was looking for. But I did have a list of all the districts the people had been taken in over the last ten years, and perhaps there was some pattern I could not see. Then again, I'm not a numbers person. Concordia. Hello, Tiber. How are you? What do you need? I need your brain. Sadly, I think it is in use for the foreseeable future, and <laughs> I do not plan on renting it out. I need you to run some numbers for me. You know your department is still going to consider it cheating to get me to figure out those lottery number riddles. Just like they considered it cheating last year. It is absolutely not about that. This time. Yeah. It's more of a work thing. You do applied mathematics and statistics, right? Yes, I do, as I've done for many years now. If I gave you a string of random numbers between 1 and 13, do you think you'd be able to guess the next number in the sequence? I do not guess anything in my line of work. I run data and numbers, appropriate models or codes to determine possible outcomes. So, yes? So, maybe. Tell me the numbers. I just sent them to you in a text. Did you receive them? Yes, but these look completely random. They do not fit any sequence I know from memory. Could you do some computer stuff on them? Really? Some computer stuff? Yes. Please, Concordia. A please? What is wrong? What is this, cuz? They're district numbers, from cases I'm working. I'm hoping that if you can predict the next number in the sequence, we will know where to look for the next crime. I can try, but I don't make any promises. Do you have any more information on the numbers? If it was a random string of numbers, it probably came from a generator. Do you know the starting seed, or which random generator is being used? I do not know the answers to those questions, or what those questions mean. Understood. I'll get back to you later with any information, but I will not promise anything. Any kind of timeline you need this in? The next week, if you can. Not a problem. Thanks, Concordia. Bye. For a few days, everything went back to how it was before. I worked my job, and every once in a while I would look up to see Grey singing across the room, rubbing at her face in boredom as some citizen lodged a noise complaint against the newborn baby. But she was never there. The voice was someone else's. The place was someone else's. A few months ago, a new agent had taken over her desk. Some guy just promoted from apprentice agent. He had moved through caffeine cup. Enforcer Shinko seemed to leave me alone now that I'd gone back to pushing through enough cases in a single day to justify my time and pay. I was cordial to citizens who came in, smiled with my fellow agents, told jokes, went out for drinks, and felt the pit in my stomach barrow deeper every day as the six-month anniversary of her disappearance approached. It was only three days before my expedition out into the night that I got the call from Concordia. Hi. Hi. So? So, this was an exceedingly aggravating project. I know the feeling. How'd it go? Well, I used the starting seed from the 15 most popular number generators available. These are the ones people use across the board, from school presentations to larger advanced projects, easily available on the internet. I plugged in the number sequence you gave me and set the generator to only pertain to whole numbers existing between and including 1 and 13. It was then that I ran the sequence in hope of determining a plot for possible outcomes for each number generator for the next number in its sequence. So, in simpler terms, you... Asked my computer for numbers. Politely. And the computer said? The computer said that given the past sequence run through the multiple generators that there is almost no consistencies that would warrant a confident result. I heard an almost. So, how about an unconfident result? 
Look, Tyber, there is no significant margin that would allow me to give you a number with any form of certainty. Not really going for certainty, just looking for something, anything. If I had to choose, and only because you don't seem to understand what it means to not have a confident result in a plot of results, I would say that the digits 4 and 6 have the most hits on the plot across a majority, but not all, of the 15 generators examined. So, districts 4 and 6. If you are looking for the gunshots and the fireworks, then yes. I'm an agent, Concordia. I always look for gunshots. So, can you give me a little bit more information on what this is all about? I feel like an asset in a detective drama, like one of those justice broadcasts. If this were a drama, I would tell you. But seeing how this is official work, you already know too much. And I may have to kill you. <laughs> I'd like to see you try, little cuz. <laughs> Thanks for the information. I'll talk with you later. Bye. Bye. I had been hoping for one decisive answer. But Concordia was great at her job. And if she said there was no statistical significance for one district being more likely than another, I would believe her. Regardless of the indeterminate outcome, result dots on plots would be better suited to choose my destination than my attempt to randomly point out a map of the districts. So now I had a choice. District 4 or District 6. I spent the next three days at work with just a few cases. Apprentice agents were given a heavy caseload, while many agents and senior agents were assigned a high-profile string of kidnappings and drug overdoses, in coordination with the Civil Defense Force. Two Atrian children from two separate affluent families have been kidnapped on the same day from different schools in Central City, with links to an under-investigation drugs ring, thought to be operating in one of the outer districts. The case was an aggravating endeavor, as the CDF refused to share all the relevant information regarding the case with even our senior agents. Enforcement about eventually released many agents, including myself, from the case after three days of investigation. As she saw, we were not able to fully aid the investigation if the officers of the CDF did not give over the information. Yet, even with this holdup, in the first two days of the investigation, the combined task force had found multiple suspects, clues, and witnesses with telling information. All of this in two days. More than I could find in months of looking for Gray, twenty times over. Enforcer Shinko, seemingly perpetually irritated, welcomed me and my fellow agents back to the department with inboxes filled with unworked petty cases. I spent my day in a haze of data and names, preparing a small section of an annual report on vandalism in Districts 5 through 10. When I was finally shuffling my feet through the door of my apartment, Concordia was seated in my kitchen. Hi. Reeve, Concordia. I could have hurt you. How did you even get in here? I have your entry code. You gave it to me. I'm your emergency contact. What are you doing here? I'm worried about you. You've been secretive, asking me about that number of stuff for work, not calling to complain about your job at least once a week. I know about Agent Gray, that she's missing. How? Your boss, Enforcer Shinka, or Shurko. Shinko. Enforcer Shinko called me after he said that you had begun to let your work falter. He wanted me to check on you. Tiber, he used the words... Spiraling. I'm not spiraling, I'm fine. Do I need to point to the state of your place, or can you just open your eyes and move your head around? I'm messy, so what? That's normal. But those notes on your desk and on your computer, those are... That is a lot of spiraling. Please stop using that word. I know what you are planning on doing tonight. Can I convince you not to? Because you'll think I'll disappear, or because you think I'll be wasting my time? Because I'm afraid of what this obsession is doing to your mind. Do you have anything important to tell me? Otherwise, I'm leaving. Concordia left. She looked hurt, upset. I decided on District 4. District 4 was chilly. 
Not a lot colder than my district, but enough that it was noticeable when I stepped off the sky rail. It was dark. The lights of the streets turned down dim for the sake of those sleeping. All the shops closed up and blackened for the night. As I wandered the streets of District 4, circling building after building, I slowly lost confidence in what I was hoping for. Not even the numbers were truly on my side. As the hours passed in District 4, I only saw a few people wandering the streets. Mostly young couples and groups of friends out for drinks, or coming home from clubs roamed from one building to the next, dropping off members of their respective groups in their respective homes. The hour grew later and later. At one point I sat on a bench and could feel sleep creeping up behind my eyes before a sky rail passed over me with a burst of blustered cold air. Standing, I walked on. It was not as late as it had been when Gray and I had spoken, as it had been when she had disappeared. My mind operated automatically, and between its wish to sit down and my wish to search on, I walked onto the sky rail, headed for District 7. If 4 was a bust, maybe 7 would have better results. I watched the city move below me as the train rounded past buildings. Single lights become strands of movement in my drooping eyes. We will soon be arriving at Station 5, District 7. Please disembark at Station 5 to access the Geneva Music Hall and Auditorium, the Decima Sculpture Garden, and the District 7 Commerce Center. The crackle of the announcement pushed me back into the waking world. I stood up from my seat and walked to the door. In the distance and coming ever nearer, the train station glowed. White lights illuminating platform, timetables, and tired, hopeful citizens waiting for their ride home. I leaned as the train came to a stop, and the air pushed in through the sliding doors. We have arrived at Station 5 in District 7. Please disembark. This train is scheduled for routine maintenance. Thank you for using the SkyRail system, and remember, breathe indoors. I stepped out into the bright lights of the station, walking into the first available elevator. I shared the ride with a young couple that was leaning into the corner, eyes closed as though they'd fallen asleep standing. When the elevator came to a jolted halt at its lowest point, they awoke and disembarked after me. The street level was far darker than the station above. In the stations, it never felt like night. I awoke in an instant, the walking automaton replaced fully by the raging pulse in my body and mind. Ahead of me, down the street by fifteen meters or so, a skinny, crooked form of a man approached a woman in the suit of a maintenance worker. I walked up quickly, now fully alert, watching as they exchanged brief words, and the woman began to follow the skinny figure off her original path. I gained ground, nearing them ever so slightly with every few steps, needing to know what happens, needing to know where Gray may have gone. I maintained a disguising distance from my persons of interest. What's wrong? What do you need help with? I can call the DCO for you. She seemed like a caring person but also a bit more of a commanding presence than the usual victims who were brought into the department. Victims usually chosen by random attackers for how vulnerable they appear. But this woman looked like she would just as quickly give you a swift knuckled knock as hand you a handkerchief. While she was far more pale than grey, she held herself in a similar manner. The man she was following, or the person she was following, was more difficult to read. At some moments he seemed so tall, and at others he may have been several centimeters shorter than myself. His coat covered him completely not in uncommon fashion, and his privacy hood was fully opaque, obscuring almost the entire head. There was so little to work with. Following discreetly, I noticed them crossing the street, walking behind the massive pillar suspending part of the sky rail track hundreds of feet above. I waited for them to reach the other side of the street, but they never reappeared from behind the support. Rushing forward, I saw the metal hatch leading down to the substructure swung ajar. I hesitated only for a brief moment before I descended. I'm going to leave. 
If you need help, tell me now how I can help. Otherwise, I will leave and call the DCO. I'm going to leave. You will help. It is confirmed. No, I'm sorry. I'm not. This has gone too far. In that moment, the woman turned around and met my eyes. I was several meters down the poorly lit hall, but once she saw me, I put my finger to my lips and pointed at my coat's DCO patch. Another time, sir. You will help. Let go of me! You will help. Ah! She struggled against his grip, striking him rather violently within the small confines of the tunnel. Ah! When I approached, I saw what had made her scream and recoiled a moment myself. What gripped her arm was only the semblance of a hand, an arm. Bending where the lower arm would appear to have been, it was disjointed, pivoting, and slithered. The hand attached to its end was taut with thin skin stretched over pale silvered bone. Wrapped around the woman's arm, curled fingers of varying lengths and tones, some bloated blue with rot, skin stapled to skin, secured by a mix of melted metals. Regaining my grounding, I rushed forward, removing and extending the security baton from my belt. With the full extent of motion available in the tunnel, I crashed the metal down upon the abductor's shoulder. The woman took the opportunity to free herself from its currently weakened grip, retracting its arm in on itself, stitched fingers folded into its palm, it fled further down into the obscurity of the substructure below. Ma'am, are you okay? I'm fine. What was that thing? Ma'am, get out of here. Go to the nearest Department of Civil Order. Demand to see Enforcer Shinko. Tell him everything. What? Who? Enforcer Shinko. Ask for him. Say Agent Caulfield sent you. Go! He's getting away. She ran past me and back into the streets above. I turned to the passage, staring into the black, and followed ever further down the tunnel before me. I love Concordia. Every year for my birthday she gets me gifts she knows I will need, but which I would never think to purchase myself. I did not know shaving cream was a thing until I was about 23. Thanks for that, Concordia. The self-stirring caffeine mug she got me when I turned 18 is still sitting in my kitchen cabinet, awaiting its daily morning ritual. I pulled up my hood, and with a wave of a hand I turned on the low-light visual aid attachment that had been given to me on my last birthday, and felt a short wave of regret recalling our last encounter. Regret was overtaken by adrenaline as I heard the screech of metal upon metal in the cavern ahead. Still many meters from where the sound came from, I rushed forward through the hall, trying to keep my eyes on the target before I lost him to the maze beneath the city. A door, far from being well-maintained, screamed with protest and neglect with every centimeter it opened. Behind it stretched another hall, further into the depths beneath the city. Around a distant corner, I caught a coattail disappear. I chased on. Several minutes into the hall, a large grate, over a meter in height and width, hung loosely from its supports, swinging with a creak. I lifted it away and pulled myself into the passage, perhaps a meter off the ground. If I had the job of the woman I'd sent away, I'd probably know what I was looking at. I made a guess that it was some kind of emergency pressure release for an old mine from decades or even centuries ago, but did not think of it much longer as the stench overcame my breathing. I had no point of reference for what the smell could be. It was a warm, sweet, and pungent odor that stuck to the back of my throat and clung to my nostrils in warning. Crouching through the small passage, I forced myself onward, throwing my unarmed hand up to fend off the most putrid, moist air. The closer I came to the upcoming beam of dull light, the greater the stench grew, and the more I could make out in the echoes of the tunnel. A low moan, popping and grinding seemed audible the closer I hurried, and a rhythmic clicking snapped at my eardrums. Assaulted by my senses, I was disoriented but aware. The barrage should have warded me away, but as I redoubled my efforts, I pulled onwards into the room ahead. Reeve. 
What faced me as I emerged was a room akin to countless nightmares, unfit to hold presence in the shining, sleeping city that lay above. No matter how far down into the world these tunnels burrowed, nowhere was deep enough to suffer the existence of such a place. Carelessly placed about the room in undefined rows sat small tubes and larger flat-topped glass tanks, a layer of dust and grime encrusted about every surface. I could not make out what was in most of the containers, but a few became known to me through quick and terrifying realization. There, floating in a tank mere steps from where I had lowered myself into the surrounding misery, was a heart, piped and wired as it bobbed gently in an awful yellowing liquid. In a prompt response, I buckled over and proceeded to vomit. I was not prepared to face this. I had thought my search would lead nowhere. A nearby clamor alerted me, and I bolted back up, wiping my face and stumbling to the next table. There, a hand floated, fingers brushing the bottomless glass, and amongst the wires and pipes where the wrist would have been, it brandished an eyeball. The bloodshot, misplaced organ stared up at me, and with a synchronized twitch of a finger, it blinked. The skin around the eye pulled over, trying to moisten the eye with skin from somewhere else. It sunk back slightly into the wrist, dipping back into the damp recesses to keep itself functional. With a panicked slash of my bat on the glass shattered, spilling out its contents to the floor and across my feet. The monstrous hand spasmed and I brought my boot down on it in one defensive, powerful stomp. I stood there a moment, breathing heavily as it lay motionless beneath my foot, the eye open and unfocused. The further I walked, the more it became apparent. Medical trays with caked-on stains hosted an array of organs, some of which I recognized, others which I had never seen before. Each organ was fitted with an array of different mechanisms outside my realm of education. On one particular table, displayed as though in recent use, an arrangement of hearts were attached to separated limbs including arms and intestines, each living and beating, but functioning under no control. Disembodied and useless, yet alive. I proceeded with the utmost caution and disgust deeper into the madhouse. Along the back wall, the tallest tanks rose wide and cylindrical to the ceiling. Before my widened, terrified stare, the stitched torso of a woman with a familiar face floated. Grey. Her usually sneering, lively face sat blank with no sign of sleep, no sign of thought. The torso before me was limbless, large areas of skin sewn unskillfully back together as tubes ran to and from her grievous wounds. The gash-stitched scar across her abdomen alluded to even more missing from the inside. From as much as I could see through the dirty glass, her head looked undamaged but for the wires that pierced into her left temple. I leaned forward, touching the glass. I should have believed you, Gray. I should have come with you. You were right. Fuck, you were always right. I'm so sorry. I struck my fist against the glass, staring down at the black and filth-ridden floor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My fist struck the glass again, and the gray that remained before me jolted into action, thrashing in the liquids of the tank, disturbing the tubing and the pipes, pushing a thick, yellowing liquid over the metal grated top of the tank. Her eyes flew open in her struggle, revealing black, empty sockets beneath a furrowed brow. Horrified, I fell back to the ground as blood leaked from our wounds and glad at the tank, the view of her becoming darker and darker the harder she thrashed. Above me stood that man, the assaulter, abductor, and monster I'd forgotten in my shock. He was poised to strike me when I had fallen, and his pole struck the massive tank in my stead. He did nothing to damage the grimy, thick glass. My baton arm supported my weight as I reached forward, yanking my assaulter's coat down towards me on the floor. From where I had expected a man to fall, instead poured out a multitude of gory creations. The head of the thing clapped to the floor with a wet slap and skidded away. Pulled by fingers upon fingers of spiny, constructed legs, its dripping jaw hanging slack. 
From the torso and arms came rusted metal's creaking cries as pieces of itself unraveled, flesh and metal tendrils before slithering away into the darker parts of the room. Its legs stood a moment before toppling over. One lay lifeless as the other dragged itself away, with a line of stinking ichor trailing behind. From around the room, screeching cries rang out as I bolted for the exit. Knocking over jars and vials as I ran, I stumbled with shaky hands to remove my projectile stun gun from its holster. As I drew it out, I leapt and grasped up into the passage through which I had arrived in the cursed hall. Turning to pull my legs up, I saw something crawling toward me, its mass silhouetted as parts of it began to unfurl. I pointed my stun gun and fired, landing its bolts on the thing approaching and felling it back into the fetid puddles below. A spark reacted with some part of the repulsive concoction spread across the floor, and flames erupted throughout the room. As a chorus of hideous voices shrieked, I fled. Slow down, Agent Caulfield. I'd not stopped running until I made it back to the department. Enforcer Shinko is in the interrogation room with Citizen McKinney, the woman who said you had sent her here. I'd rushed in like a crazy person, panting and demanding to see Enforcer Shinko. I apologize, Enforcer, about, but, but I must speak with him. Maharas did not leave me as I fled, but stayed with me as I closed my eyes. Agent, I believe you may be in shock. I could still smell it in my breath, taste the air in my throat. The department has help available for agents. Its head crawled away, fingers under fingers. I have called in a Dr. Werner to check on you and speak with you about your incident. The legs just stood there. One walked away. Where did Gray's legs go? How do you know about the incident? They could have been her legs. Womanly. Toned. Stitched. Tubed. Protruding. Agent, you are covered in blood and... filth. Was she alive? Was she still in there? Had I burned her? Boiled her? Can I shower while I wait? I could feel it in my hair, drops slipping down behind my ear. Yes, the techs already took samples. Go shower, Agent Caulfield. Agent Morgans will find you a fresh set of clothes. Six months. Like clockwork. Can't keep pieces alive too long, fending off the rot. Agent Caulfield? Are you okay in there? Euclid. August, Bernardus, Silvius, Gray. This is Agent Morgans. A fresh set of clothes is out here on the bench. Will you help me? Will you help me make new parts? Thank you. Thank you, Agent. I'll be out shortly. That's the smell of rotten death living under your toes. Agent Caulfield, will you join me in the interrogation room? Dr. Werner is not here yet, Enforcer Shinko. I know, Enforcer Nabao, but we may not have time to wait. I, I, I saw it, sir. The thing. Come with me, Agent. <laughs> Citizen McKinney ran to the station over an hour and a half ago. I told her to run, to go... To ask for you. She did. She had a lot to say. What are you going to say, Agent Caulfield? We have to go down there. With guns and CDF. It needs to die. It needs to die, sir. What did you find, Agent Caulfield? Gray. Excuse me? Gray. I found Gray. I found her. And she was floating with no arms or legs. It took her eyes. It took her eyes, boss. 
You located a DCO agent that had been missing for months. You found Agent Gray, dead, under the city? I don't know. I don't know if she was dead, but she was there. She opened her eyes. She was alive? You said she had no eyes. Fine, you fucker. She opened her eyelids and they were gone. Gone! And she had this scar across her abdomen like other bits inside were taken out. She started knocking about, floating in that tank she was moving, but she had to be dead, right? She must have been dead. Is that all you found? We need to get down there and kill it. What, Agent Caulfield? What? That parts of people, sir. All the parts of people crawling around on their own with metal in them. All the pieces of people that made that monster. The man with the sewn skin hand, Citizen McKinney reported. Yes, sir, but it's not a man. It's parts of a man, dressed up like one, stacked up like on... One moment, Agent Caulfield. Yes, who is this? Huh? And... What does it say? And the evidence that was not blood? I understand. When will the data from his privacy hood be available? Damaged. Understood. Thank you. Do you think you would be able to guide a team down into the tunnels to where your encounter took place, Agent Caulfield? Yes. Yes, I can. Give me a gun. I can bring us down there. You have to understand, Agent Caulfield, we would not bring someone under so much stress as you in a normal situation. But those tunnels are a maze. You will not be given a gun. You will lead a team from the back, and if any form of attack begins, you will retreat behind cover. Do you understand? Yes. Sir. Based on the evidence found in your clothes and treads, as well as the statement given by both you and Citizen McKenney in reference to the case data collected by Agent Gray and yourself, I will be calling in the CDF to lead a team into the substructure. You will be assigned with them. When? Now. Enforcer Nabao has arranged it. Are you sure you are up to this, Agent? I'm not sure, sir, but I need to know. Come in. The CDF task force is at the designated substructure entrance and is awaiting you and Agent Caulfield, sir. Thank you, Agent Morgans. Ready, Agent Caulfield? Great Argon, it reeks down here. Shh, Officer Robin. Through there. Through that gate. That is the room. Everyone stay in line. Agent Caulfield, get behind me. Clear. Nothing here, sir. What? It should be right there. We crashed through the tunnel. The officers ahead of us, they saw it first. The black mass of a room, walls torched them, filled with the smell of ashes, chemicals, and lingering rot. But nothing was there. Tables... Vials, tanks, tubes, all non-existent. I touched every wall until my hands were blackened. This was it, sir. This was it. It's gone, then, Agent. 
How? The, the tank she was in, it was massive to the ceiling. Calm down, Agent Caulfield. Uh, let's get you home. I was placed on an indeterminate amount of leave, based on the professional discretion of Dr. Werner. I met with him once every three days, and I spent a lot of nights on Concordia's large sofa. She insisted. She was worried. Days would go by. Hey, I'm leaving for work. Uh, remember, you have an appointment with Dr. Werner tomorrow? And do some laundry, please? I kept broadcasts on. One news channel, then the next. Vandalism, drugs, murder, assault, perjury. I saw the city keep moving in the wrong direction. Hey, I am leaving for work. Do not forget you have an appointment with Werner today. Seldom leaving her apartment, my trips to Dr. Werner's would take hours. Hey, I am leaving for work. There's warm caffeine in the kitchen. We can talk about your meeting later tonight if you would like. One day, I got a call from Enforcer Shinko just before lunch. This is Agent Caulfield. This is Enforcer Shinko. I thought you would be interested to know that the tech team was able to pull some information off of your privacy hood. The originals were pretty much destroyed, but they sent over some reconstructed files. Have you looked at any of the files yet, sir? Yes, Agent. What did you find, sir? All of the audiovisual files are non-operational. A month after the incident, I was cleared by Dr. Werner to return to the department, only permitted to undertake desk work for the foreseeable future. I found that numbing drawl of taking calls and listening to petty statements created a buffer between my active mind and the memories I kept pushed down, confined to my stomach. Enforcer Shinko greeted me on my first day back, but since then I'd not seen him set foot amongst the rows of desks and beeping calls. Agents Parsons and Freeman stopped by my desk, looking down through eyes more tipped with pity than sadness. They clapped me on the shoulder in silence, returning to their work. I tossed my coat up my arm and was walking to the door when I saw the woman sitting in the waiting room, head downcast and sniffling. Ma'am, are you all right? Will you help me? I froze. Her voice was that of a sad, broken woman, but my mind had weak barriers against waiting horrors. I stammered. I... I... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am. What do you need? She turned her cloaked head up to me, and I saw her gently wrinkled face streaked with tears. Her eyes buffed and red. Her mouth was small and shaking with every word. Well, will you help me find my daughter? Please... Please, she, she disappeared about a month ago. Please, please. She reached out a soft, creased, weak hand for the end of my draped coat. A pleading, slight tug pulling me. Uh, I reported it the, the night of a... I did. The agents never got back. They never got back to me. My daughter, she's... She is... She's such a nice girl. A helpful girl. It was not gone. It would never be gone. It was naive of me to think it had disappeared, that it was finished. Mrs. Mallory's daughter helped a man on her way home for dinner. She was 29. She never came for dinner, and no trace was ever found of her. Five days after my incident, after I had burned it, and all its tiny, hairy creations and parts, I couldn't face Mrs. Mallory knowing what I knew, knowing I'd burned all of its moving bits and all its extra pieces, knowing what gray looked like floating in fetid waters knowing it needed more now than it had ever needed before. It needed more now than it had ever needed before. 
I rushed back to my desk and brought up the departmental list of missing persons files for the last few weeks. Citizen Mallory, Citizen Fox, Citizen Gatmore. Each matched the description, but not the timeline. As I had laid on Dr. Verna's sofa trying to save myself from monstrous memories, three citizens had faced it to never return again. It needed more. It took more. I pressed my head against the edge of my desk, exhaling air up from my lungs as the bile and hate in my stomach tried the same. Eyes closed, I thought on the depths of those tunnels and the black, soot-coated walls of that room. I breathed deep, the cool push from the air vent below me helping to stir my mind back to the department. My chair. My desk. Mrs. Mallory. Preparing to face the fragile citizen in the waiting room, I opened my eyes. From the vent below, an eye blinked back. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Podcast, Tales from the Tower. Excuse me, parts one and two were written by Caitlin Statz, co-created and produced by Travis Vengroff, and mixed by Brandon Strater. Excuse Me was read for us by Kareem Cronfley and featured additional voices by Nicole Fernandez, Daniel Demerin, Peter Lewis, Caitlin Statz, Cap Blackard. Russ Moore, Katie Otten, Zoe Von Embler, Christy Luce, Caitlin Buckley, Rebecca Thomas, Paul Maya, Joseph Teagle, Adam Cartwright, Travis Vengroff, Abby Kindler, Jeannie Corcoran, and Russell Gold. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by liking and reviewing our show on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and may the Archon watch over you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.